This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 14, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. China's role as the banker, key trading partner, and military rival of the United States causes a lot of hand-wringing and misinformation. But the challenge posed by China should not be viewed so narrowly, according to Stefan Halper, author of The Beijing Consensus, How China's Authoritarian Model Will Dominate the 21st Century. We spoke following a forum for the book last week. Some fiscal conservatives see China as a threat in the sense that it has liberally extended credit to the United States, and a lot of people view that as having delayed days of reckoning that probably ought to have occurred in the United States, if not now, uh, maybe a few years ago. And so they blame China for doing that when all those decisions were actually made in the United States. But do you see beyond the investment value of the uh, Chinese government extending credit to Uncle Sam, a strategic value for uh, China holding so many U.S. dollars? Uh, there's sort of two questions in your, in your, uh, your query. Um, the Chinese are not extending credit to the United States because they wish to bring us down. Uh, and they are not extending credit in the form of, uh, you could say, purchasing treasuries um, because they wish to have the option or, in fact, proceed uh, to alter the value of the dollar. They are uh, investing in what they regard to be a very stable asset. And if they get one or two percent return on a stable asset, uh, given the size of their portfolio, they're quite happy to do that. Now, if in strategic terms, if the Chinese were to cease the purchase of U.S. treasuries, uh, it could increase U.S. interest rates by approximately three quarters of one percent. If that were to happen, I really do think we could live with that because our response would be to slap punitive tariffs on their exports to the U.S. and impact them where they're very sensitive, namely the factories that are employing people uh, in the export sector. So in the event of a trade war, uh, thinking strategically, China loses. We would lose too, though. We'd lose somewhat, but we wouldn't lose nearly what the Chinese would lose. The Chinese, uh, I mean, the iron spine of governance uh, in Beijing within the Communist Party, the iron spine is fear. It's fear of chaos. And chaos comes when people are thrown out of work, they're on the streets, they demonstrate. Who do they demonstrate against? They demonstrate against the government. China has adopted some reforms in recent years that do favor liberty. It doesn't seem that the reforms, I'm talking about uh, some more secure property rights, uh, new laws are online that that may uh, do uh, some similar things. But it seems clear that those reforms were not adopted uh, for the sake of liberty. They were adopted for the economic benefits that uh, those kinds of reforms would bring. How likely is that type of reform to be expanded 
again, not necessarily in the interest of liberty, but in the interest of economic benefits that uh, those types of libertarian moves would promote. The reforms you, uh, that, that, that I think you're referring to are often uh, reforms in property law. Uh, and the core question, frankly, a question that's haunted uh, the Communist Party for since 1978 when Deng Xiaoping first started this program of, of liberalization. The question is, who owns the property? Who owns the land? Can you actually own a house with land, or are you simply renting it on a long-term lease from the government? Um, the Chinese people, particularly rural people, have always believed that the fields that they till and that their parents and grandparents have worked uh, are their property. And all of a sudden, uh, you saw uh, combinations of party officials and local businessmen selling the, that land to foreign factories and foreign corporations. That brought huge numbers of violent protest in China. So that in 2005, you had uh, 54,000 protests across the country. 2006, it was 67,000. 2007, 74,000, and so on. They uh, stopped giving that statistic, by the way, in 2008. Um, so what, I mean, the, the, what this was about was uh, who owns the land in this communist system? And the um, Congress of the People in Beijing took this issue up uh, for several sessions in a row, several years, and finally came to uh, a conclusion that the land could be held in long-term lease uh, by uh, individuals. So, you know, and, and are they going to expand that? Only if it's practical. It has got nothing to do with ideals. It has only to do with the fact that you cannot run a market economy, which theirs is, unless you guarantee private property. It is a precondition to that economic model. In January, uh, this is from the AP, China's cabinet suggested major changes to the way land is seized for redevelopment in an attempt to calm a passionate issue that has sparked growing violence, even prompting some protesters to set themselves on fire. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. That. Right. It, it, it seems that the domestic impediments to a lot of this Chinese-style central planning are, are growing. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, I think that, uh, as I point out in my book, The Beijing Consensus, um, what you have is public pressure on the government to make reforms in this area uh, as a practical step forward, permitting the market to operate more efficiently. And uh, yes, there's a lot of protest. There's a lot of sense that there's cronyism and there's corruption in these decisions. And there's a lack of transparency and it's unfair. And that's what stimulates these violent protests. Well, you can't go on like that. I mean, you can't have thousands and thousands of protests across the country every year and, uh, and not address the problem. So that's what they're doing. They're not doing it for idealistic or 
philosophical sure. reasons. They're doing it for practical reasons. They're trying to reduce the violence. A lot of the uh, advertising that India has done in trying to attract uh, investment has positioned itself as being sort of the anti-China in a lot of ways. That is, especially when it comes to uh, transparency, when it comes to uh, independent judiciary and, and things like that. Well, does that really put pressure on China to to make changes? Again, not for uh, idealistic reasons, but for practical reasons. You know, I uh, I would think theoretically that the Chinese are probably always looking over their shoulders and uh, they see the Indians behind them. Uh, but I don't know that that would have motivated them uh, enormously. India uh, is an immensely complex uh, political and economic culture, and it has its own problems. Uh, there's a, it's terribly difficult to get permits to do anything in India. You know, it's, uh, there are multiple layers of bureaucracy and committees and political groups. So it doesn't have nearly the efficiency that China can offer an investor. On the other hand, uh, if something goes wrong in China and the uh, authorities, local or otherwise, uh, take a position, you've had it. I mean, you, you can't really appeal it very well. Chinese courts are unreliable. They're subject to corruption and bribes and so on. In India, you might have a slightly better chance. Um, I don't think the Chinese act because of uh, the Indian effort to promote their democracy. I think the Chinese believe, in fact, that they have a more efficient and effective system than the Indians. Now, of course, the Indians believe the opposite. You talk a little bit in your book about the different ways that think tank types in Washington view the Chinese uh, military threat. Um, you pointed to Ivan Elind at, at the Cato Institute who had said that uh, some of the threat is created in Washington – um, what what do you make of, of the differing opinions about the reality of the uh, Chinese military threat? Well, I have to say that uh, you know there are wide there's a wide variety of opinion on this, and uh, people uh, believe the Chinese military budget could be as low as ninety billion a year, and others, uh, as we heard in today's uh, discussion this morning, could be well. Uh, approaching 400 billion. So the scope of the uh, military budget is unclear, and it's also unclear uh, as to what portions of the military bureaucracy and non-military bureaucracy ought to be included in that. Um, I think that most reasonable analysts um, in Washington, and certainly the Pentagon's annual report, uh, take the view that Chinese advances are principally in the area of cyber warfare, subsurface warfare, and space-based warfare, and that the Chinese objective of uh, compromising our command control, communications, reconnaissance, surveillance, intelligence, integration, that is to say, our capacity to manage the battle space through integrated communication. Our, that is what they're targeting. That's what they want to disable. 
It is the satellite which oversees the battle space and communicates with commanders on the ground uh, in headquarters and others in the field. So the Chinese have focused on this, and they've sharpened their cyber warfare. They've sharpened their, um, their reconnaissance to some degree, as I mentioned this morning. Um, does that constitute a strategic threat to the United States? No. Does it constitute a threat to U.S. forces operating in the Western Pacific, the 7th Fleet, for example? Yeah, they have to have increased awareness of Chinese capability. And that is essentially what the admirals uh, and Singpak are, are saying. Stefan Halper is author of the book, The Beijing Consensus, How China's Authoritarian Model Will Dominate the 21st Century. You can watch the full book forum at cato.org.